This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Today I want to talk some about comparison. Comparison, which is just something that is so natural for everyone in the room today. Comparison. In an article called Comparison, the Thief of Glory, the Thief of Joy, rather, uh, it is a thief of God's glory as well, but the Thief of Joy, um, pastor and author Scott Sauls writes the following. He says, in mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis said that pride is essentially competitive. It gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. Pride doesn't find pleasure in what it has or what it is. It finds pleasure in having more of it than the next person. He says, he writes, so why do we continue to diminish our neighbor as a way of building ourselves up? Why do we find pleasure in negative gossip and the misfortune of others? Why are so many of us on the hunt to find something to be offended by? Why do we take sides and engage in us against them conversations? Why do we feel we must win in order to feel okay about ourselves? Comparison, we seek to feel good about ourselves compared to others. Sometimes it can be motivated by feeling bad, badly about ourselves. He goes on to write, I'll never forget the sinking feeling I got after reading in the New York Daily News about Kelly Osborne. She's the reality, a number of years ago, reality TV person, daughter of Sharon and Ozzy. After disappearing from the public eye for a while, Kelly Osborne reemerged during New York City's Fashion Week. Having lost 42 pounds, the once famously morose, chubby reality TV star now had a new curvy body and a fresh aura of poise. The world, for a moment, took notice. When asked about why she lost the weight, she replied, I took more heck, uh, my uh, edit, I took more heck for being fat than I did for being an absolute raging drug addict. I'm really proud to look in the mirror and not hate every single thing I see. I no longer think, why don't you look like this girl or that girl? As Kelly Osborne shows us, the impulse to compare and compete does not always come from arrogance. Sometimes it comes from a frightened, lonely, shame-filled place where the only instinct is survival, like minnows swimming among sharks. Comparison. We, we seek to measure ourselves among ourselves. We seek to compare our looks, our money, our jobs, our friends, our relationships, our possessions. We seek to feel good about ourselves by measuring ourselves among ourselves. And this also applies uh, in the Christian life. We seek to measure our spiritual lives in relation to others. We seek to measure our godliness in comparison to others. We seek to measure our Christian maturity in how we stand against other Christians and how we stand against those outside of the church that don't know the Lord and seek to have a self-assessment that 
is positive based on how we measure ourselves. And it is this brand of self-righteousness, this kind of pride that Jesus addresses in a parable in Luke 18. A parable is a story, we're doing a series on parables. It's a story that Jesus tells um, that, that reveals something about him and something about his hearers. He tells something that's very familiar to his first hearers to reveal an unfamiliar spiritual truth to them. And that's exactly what he does in verses 9 through 14 of Luke chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus tells a story with two characters that are very unfamiliar to us but were very familiar in first century Judaism. These aren't caricatures, they're fair pictures of real people, but he takes two people that are on opposite ends of the spectrum of respectability, and he tells a story about them. The first is a Pharisee, and the Pharisees were on the, uh, the end of the spectrum that would have been respectable. In first century Jew- uh, Judaism, they would have been viewed as the most moral individuals in the culture. Now, it's hard for us to receive the impact of this story. If you're a church person and you have any uh, knowledge of the Gospels, um, That's good, but you're also limited, I'm limited in being able to feel the punch of a story like this. We have 2,000 years of church history that has appropriately taught us that the Pharisees were bad. But in first century Judaism, when Jesus comes on the scene, he is critiquing the most esteemed members of the culture. The Pharisees are the most morally upright people in the society in the view of first century Jews. They they are scrupulous. They are careful. They seek to obey the scripture, obey God, unlike any other group of people. They are the highest and holiest of all. So when Jesus says a Pharisee goes up to the temple to pray, everybody would, well, of course, where would you see a Pharisee? Praying in the temple. They're the most righteous, godly people of all in the eyes of Jesus' hearers. On the other side of the spectrum is a tax collector. Now, that's hard for us to appreciate as well. That's not someone who works for the IRS, You may think the IRS is bad. Actually, I had a neighbor who worked for the IRS and he was one of the nicest guys I've ever met. So uh, you may think that, you know, that's like an IRS worker, uh, but it's something very different. You see, the Jews were ruled by Rome. They were under Roman authority. And Rome um, taxed the Jews heavily. 
And the way it worked was you could bid for a region to be a tax collector. So you could pay a sum of money to the Roman government. That gave you a territory where you were uh, required um, to... Uh, re, to gather taxes from the people. And so there were taxes on everything. There were land taxes, there were sales taxes, there were inheritance taxes, there were toll charges. I mean, we complain about our tollway. That's not new. Uh, there was tolls to even travel. If you were carrying goods from one region to another and entering that region, uh, you paid a tax. And so the tax collector was a Jew who was conscripted by the enemy to collect money from his own people. And anything he collected over the required amount, he got to keep. So these were dishonest people. These were people that were shaking down their own brothers and sisters. Do you catch that? They had sold out to the enemy for a dollar to make money. They bought the right to squeeze money, to pressure, to extort money out of their own people. Pay the Roman government and pocket the rest. This is the worst guy imaginable in the culture. So no one's expecting Jesus to say, there's a tax collector praying at the temple. They'd be like, what? What are you talking about? A tax collector at the temple. The worst of society, the best of society, both come to pray. Now, Jesus tells us what the parable's about uh, in the way that Luke uh, introduces it. Usually, you have to wait to the end of the parable to get to the punchline, but Luke gives us the punchline in verse nine. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. This is a parable that addresses the issue of self-righteousness and looking down on other people. This is what it's about. So we, we get the punchline. There's only a, a couple, maybe three parables in all the Gospels where you find out what it means before you even read it. So we don't have to wonder. This is what it means. It addresses self-righteousness and looking down on other people. And Jesus just takes these two characters and he's going he's gonna to blow up their world. Everything they think about righteousness, he's about to blow away his audience with what he says. So there are two kinds of prayer here. First of all is the Pharisee's prayer. This guy, this holy man uh, is praying and he, in verse 11, it says, standing by himself, he prayed thus, God, I thank you. He's off to a really good start. God, I thank you, but he goes downhill very fast because he begins to pray, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I thank you that I am not like other men. I'm not like extortioners. I'm not like the unjust. I'm not like the adulterers. And I'm certainly not like this guy, the tax collector. He's comparing himself with people in the room at the temple. He's saying, God, I, I don't threaten other people like an extortioner to get money. God, I don't treat people unfairly like the unjust. God, I, I'm not sleeping with anybody but my wife. I'm sexually faithful, and I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you that I'm not a traitor to my people like the tax collector. He's making comparisons. He's saying, Lord, I thank you that I am better than this person. And we're all tempted to do that. It's, it's, it's rooted in pride. It is saying, I thank you, Lord, that I am better. Even if we wouldn't say that, most of us wouldn't pray that prayer. We would just think it. 
I'm better than this person. And we in the church are notorious about judging ourselves superior to those outside the church. We judge those inside the church as well. But it's so easy to look at a culture, to talk about a declining culture, to talk about the moral decay of a culture, and all the while distance ourselves from that culture as if we are pristine, as if we would never, as if I thank my God I'm better than fill in the blank. And I don't know about you, but I typically do that with people that are different than me, people that struggle in different ways than I do, people that I disagree with. Lord, I thank you that I'm not like who? The person you disagree with politically. I'm gonna address some of that this summer, not politics and not the election, but the attitudes that are being revealed in our hearts and in social media and in the regular media. I'm gonna address that because uh, I'm, I'm gravely concerned about myself and about us uh, with the attitudes that come out. I thank you that I am not like, fill in the name of the candidate. I'm better than that person. I thank you that I'm not like someone of a different culture. I just don't get their culture. I thank you that I'm not like that person of another race. I thank you that I'm not like that person of another religion. I'm thankful that I'm not like that person that struggles maybe in a different way than I do. I'm thankful that I'm not that person that's abusing prescription drugs. Or maybe you say, I'm thankful that I'm not that person who is an alcoholic. I'm thankful I'm not that person that's addicted to pornography. I'm thankful that I'm not that person who is sexually promiscuous. I don't have to worry about getting an STD because I am not sexually promiscuous. And so if you do, well, that serves you right. I'm thankful I'm not that kind of person. I don't have those kind of problems because I don't live that kind of life. That, that's the prayer of the Pharisee. I, I thank you that I'm not like someone whose lifestyle is different than mine. I thank you, Lord. We wouldn't say that, but in our hearts we think, Lord, uh, you know, I'm glad I'm not like the rich people. All the rich people that I see in this area, they're shallow, they're materialistic, they, they just think that their life is determined by what they have. It is so middle school that you never grew up and you think that what you own defines you. I'm glad I'm not like that. I'm glad I'm not like poor people. Man, I work. I'll get a job. I'm not looking to the government to take care of me. I'm glad I'm not like the poor. Glad I'm not like those conservatives, narrow-minded, living in another generation on the wrong side of history. Glad I'm not like the liberals. I'm not a liberal. I'm glad that I'm not like those people. I'm glad I'm not like the people that eat junk food. We're so judgmental, you can start a fight about eating. I'm glad I don't eat, I'm glad I'm not obese, I'm gonna live a long time, I'm taking care of the temple. Glad I am not that kind of person. Glad I'm not like those paleo people, I don't even, I don't, you don't even have to know what something is to judge somebody. I don't know what that is, but it sounds like something I don't eat, so I'm gonna judge it. Glad I'm not like that. Glad I'm not like the rednecks, ignorant people, gun-toting, God and country folk. I'm glad I'm not like that. Glad I'm not like those people in the LGBT community. Glad I'm different than them. 
Glad I'm not like those people in Frisco. They are so Frisco-y. <laughs> we can compare ourselves with all kinds of people and base our righteousness on how we're different than someone else. We can compare ourselves and judge people who are in the church as well. We can look at people in the church and judge them. And you know what? Here is the most blinding form of Phariseeism. The most blinding form of Phariseeism that we don't even see at all is I thank my God I'm not like a Pharisee. I'm thankful that I'm not one of those self-righteous legalistic people. Yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm thankful that I'm not self-righteous. I mean, just think about how that sounds for a minute. I'm thankful that I'm not like those people, those legalists who create a lot of strict rules that aren't in the Bible. I don't avoid the culture like they do. I'm in the culture. I don't make narrow lifestyle choices like they do about my entertainment, about what I eat, about alcohol, about dress, about how I raise my kids. I'm not living a legalistic lifestyle. I am free in Christ. I'm sure glad I'm not a Pharisee. The definition of a Pharisee is I'm sure glad I'm not a Pharisee. I'm sure glad I'm not like those people. Some of the, the most arrogant legalism of all is anti-legalism legalism. What separates me over there? Here's the point of the Pharisee. He judges himself by how he's different than others. What separates me from other people? That's what makes me good. It's what separates me from others. He's good because he's unlike those people. I gave 50 categories of people and there's 5,000 more. We could spend the afternoon giving categories of people. It doesn't really matter what the category is. It doesn't matter if it's someone very liberal or very conservative. It doesn't matter if they're Christian, non-Christian. It doesn't matter if they're male or female. It's just that I def uh, define myself as different than them and better than them, and I think I'm okay with God. Surely God is on my side, seeing things the way I see it. So not only does he distance himself from others, but he also talks about doing the right stuff. Verse 12, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He fasts twice a week. The Pharisee fasts, if there's 52 weeks in a year, I think there are, uh, he fasts 104 times a year. 104 days a year he fasts. Do you know how many times a year Jews were required to fast? One day, the day of atonement. One day they were required to fast. He is 104 times more godly than God's law itself. He fasts twice a week. He gives a tithe off all that he gets. A tithe was 10%. The word tithe means 10%. So you gave tithes off. It was tied to the land. You gave tithes off the land, off what you grew, off the animals that you had. So if you were a farmer and you produced a thousand carrots, I don't even know if they grow carrots in, in Israel, but you, you grew a thousand carrots. You would take a hundred of those carrots, 10%, and you would give that to the temple to feed the priest, to feed the needy. So you would tithe 
100 of those carrots, then you could sell 900 of them. So you go to the market and you sell 900 carrots and a Pharisee walks up and he buys 10 of them. They've already been tithed off of. He's already tithed his personal crops, his personal animals, uh, his, his personal garden, anything that he's grown. He's already tithed off that. He buys 10 carrots. He takes that one down and tithes off that. It's already been tithed off of, but he tithes off all that he gets, not just what he's required to tithe off of. In just these few verses, the Pharisee uses the personal pronoun I five different times. He stands before God, I thank you, I am not like the others, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all I get, I, I. He is focused on how he differs and what he's doing before God. Now contrast that with the tax collector. Verse 13. The tax collector standing far off. He's not pressing in close. He doesn't feel he deserves to be there. He won't even look up. He would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast. What does that mean? He's just pounding on his chest in agony. Because he has sold out his people. He has cheated people. He has threatened women. He has acted for his own benefit and his own money. He has been driven by greed and power. He is very aware of what he's done. He lowers his head. He beats his chest as if to say, oh my. You notice he isn't looking at anybody else. He's not saying, you know, I'm glad I'm not like. I may be a tax collector, but at least I'm not, no. He doesn't mention anybody else. He's just aware of God. The tax collector doesn't measure himself against other people. The legalists, the liberal people, the conservative people, doesn't matter. He doesn't judge himself compared to them. Rather, he measures himself against a different standard. He measures himself against God. And that's why he's crying out for mercy before a holy God. He's not defending himself. He's not criticizing others. He's not gossiping about those people. He's not judging those people. And again, I need to make it, it's very important that those people isn't one category. Those people are the legalistic Christians and those people are the drug addicts. The extremes I used before, those people are the junk food Twinkie eaters and those people are the paleo people, whatever it is. Those people are the in shape, those are the people that aren't. Those are the people that watch a ton of TV, those are the people that don't have a TV, it doesn't matter. He doesn't care about any of those people. He's looking at the Lord and saying, what about me? And that leads him to cry out for mercy. His prayer is about mercy and forgiveness. Be merciful to me, a sinner, he prays. Wow, is that a case of like really low self-esteem? He's calling himself a sinner. Whoa, doesn't he just need a hug and an attaboy and we're all okay and a participation trophy and we can just go our way? Isn't that what, is he's like in some harsh environment? No, he's in the temple before a holy God and he's lived a life that is offensive to God and offensive to others. He has harmed people and broken God's law. And so he is very clear about himself and he is crying out for mercy. Now there was more than one word for mercy 
that Jesus could have used. And he used a word for mercy that was tied to sacrifice. It was tied to atonement. Some people, the text doesn't say it, so this is speculative, but some people think that probably this prayer time is one of the two prayer times a day at the temple when sacrifices were offered. They offered sacrifices in the morning and in the afternoon. So it's very possible that sacrifices are being offered now, that the Pharisee is praying, the tax collector is praying, and the the smell of barbecue, of, of cooked animal, cooked meat, is in the air, a sacrifice unto the Lord, because he uses a word that basically says, have mercy. Lord, would you make atonement for me is basically what he says. Lord, would you forgive my sins? Lord, would you make possibly that sacrifice that I can smell and detect, would you make that apply to my life? At least he's asking for forgiveness and mercy because of sacrifice. That's for sure. But it might be that's the very context where this is happening. He is praying, forgive me, Lord. The Pharisee never acknowledges a need for forgiveness, never mentions it, never acknowledges a need for mercy. The tax collector never acknowledges the sins he's avoided, the people he's not like, or the righteous deeds he's done. He doesn't mention any of that. They couldn't be any more different. And then Jesus just turns everything upside down as he always does, and he tells the listeners the man that you view as the most righteous, God does not respond to him. The man that you view as the most despicable goes home justified. What does that mean? It means he goes home right with God. It says, uh, verse uh, 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified. This man's right with God rather than the other. Whoa, those are four stinging words. Not the other guy. Not the moral guy, not the fasting guy, not the tithing guy, not the I don't rip people off, I'm not unjust, I'm just sleeping with the woman I'm married to, not that guy. The guy who's been despicable, he goes home right with God. We just cannot get these categories. I was trying to think, what would this be like to hear? I I don't know. I don't know what the story would be like if you've never heard it before. Maybe it would be something like this. A nun and a sex trafficker were at church together praying. One of them is always in church. The other one kidnaps young girls and sells them for sex. They both pray this way. The sex trafficker goes home justified. I don't know what it would really sound like to us. There's a missionary and a drug dealer at church. One person sells substances that harm and destroy and addict, uh, lead others to addiction and destroys their lives for his own personal money and gain. The other person sold all that he had, moved to a foreign nation to help people in need. They both prayed this kind of prayer, the drug dealer went home justified. It is shocking that one person is declared righteous and not the other. And why is it that one is declared righteous and not the other? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 14, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other for, because here's the reason, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It wasn't just that they were 
a Pharisee or a tax collector or a nun or a missionary or a drug dealer or whatever. It's not the category of person. It is the type of person that humbles himself or herself and the type of person that does not. He humbles himself asking for mercy based on sacrifice. It is saying, Lord, forgive me because of the sacrifice of Christ. That's how we would apply this. Let me apply the text to us for a little bit, the story. I get two points of application today. Number one, this parable is for you. If you think this parable applies to someone else more than you, that means you needed this more than anyone. If you're sitting here thinking, man, I hope so-and-so is listening to this. If you're tempted to look around and go, hey, they're not here, so-and-so is not here today. I got to call them afterwards and say, great sermon at church today. Make sure you listen to the recording. Get the podcast. Really, really? Well, what did the Lord speak to you about it? Oh, speak to me? Uh, I don't know, but you should really listen to it. Just trust me. If you're thinking, I hope so-and-so got this, then you just revealed that you're the one who needs it. I can so easily, I can read the Bible and think about other people. I can hear a sermon and think about, I hope this benefits. That's how this is so interwoven into the core of our being. This comparison, this pride, this self-justification on who, based on who I am not like. Man, I, I know this person's political view. Man, I hope they heard this, that it's not about your political views, but I hope they got that. I know how this person is legalistic. I know how this person is anti-legalistic and hates legalistic. I hope they got it. I hope the legalist got it. I hope that gossipy person got it. I'm going to tell someone else, hey, I hope that gossipy person got it. (laughs) That's how this stuff works. We can so easily justify ourselves because I am not like them and then disdain other people who who are different than me and judge them. And some of us are really prone to judge the culture and the world and distance ourselves and be secure in our distance. And some of us are very prone to judge other Christians and get bent out of shape about other believers and and think, well, that's kind of okay. I would never want to judge the world, but I'm fine just, you know, placing myself as better than other believers. As if there's, you know, level, the ground is all level before the cross. Anybody who comes to the cross and kneels in repentance and receives forgiveness, the ground is level. I'm not better than anyone else. I have received mercy. I didn't need some of a sacrifice and somebody else needed more of a sacrifice. I needed all that Christ did for me. And so do you. So the first point is, this parable's for you. It's not for your kid, your husband, your wife, your friend, the person who uh, is in your community group, the person that you serve in children's ministry with. It's for you. Well, it is for them too, but I mean, make it personal. (laughs) You get the point. Number two, humility is the heart of godliness. Now, this passage I find tremendously convicting, but I also find it tremendously encouraging. Because what Jesus teaches here is that to be godly, you don't have to be smart. You don't have to be knowledgeable. 
you don't have to be experienced. You just have to be real. That's really comforting. The Christian life isn't, you have to jump through all these hoops. You have to, I mean, you got to do heroic, amazing things. You want to grow in the Lord? It's going to be really, really complex and really involved. And there's like multi-levels, and each level has A, B, C, and small letter Roman numeral one, two, three. I mean, it's really detailed. Jesus makes it pretty clear. You just need to be real. I just need to be honest. I just need to grieve over the sins that I commit that dishonor my loving Father. Godliness is not about putting on a religious show, but acknowledging my failures, my sins, and my weaknesses. What does, what does the tax collector do that is so amazing that Jesus would say, this guy goes home justified, which means right with God. He went home and he is right with God. What is the incredible thing he does? He just acknowledges his own sin, looks to God, asks for forgiveness. He truly assesses himself. He acknowledges his need. What does he bring to God? He brings nothing but his own sin, and he receives the loving mercy of God to change his life. He, re he repents, and he receives power to change, presumably, because the Lord says that he goes home right with God. I mean, we don't find out what happens next, but we should presume that this guy goes and lives a different life. I mean, Zacchaeus uh, is a guy who's in a similar place, and he becomes converted, and he changes his life by the power of the Spirit. So really, Jesus is teaching, you just need to come seeing your need for Jesus, you just need to ask God to have mercy. If, if you want to grow in godliness, that means grow in reality of acknowledging our need, acknowledging it before others, asking for help, asking for forgiveness, basing my standing, first of all, on God's standard, and then secondly of all, on the mercy of Christ to forgive and grant me new life to be broken for sin, to repent, to delight in Jesus who forgives us. That's really what it is. It's not very complex at all. It's actually very, very simple. Yesterday up here we had a new members class. It's great, wonderful group of people. Every class is my favorite. And uh, they, this was a great class. But I was asked a question at the end of the day that was profound. It's registered, I've thought about it a lot. And it, it, I've thought about it as I've, you know, been uh, since yesterday reviewing this text for today. But someone in the class asked, I don't, I didn't, I don't have a quote, but this is the essence. This is at least how I heard the question. Basically, we're all broken people. So my question is, how do you lead a church so that people are aware of their brokenness and live that way before others? If I could interpret her question a little bit, it's, it's basically, how do you make the church a safe place for people to be real about their lives? I think that's what she was asking. 
Okay, you're a leader. She asked it very humbly. She wasn't, wasn't a challenge. It was a sincere question. Okay, you're, you're one of the leaders of the church, and you're telling us all about the culture of the church. So how, what are you doing to make this church a safe place for people to be real and to encourage people to be real? I think she was saying, how could this be a church that's more like tax collectors than Pharisees? Is there a way for a church to be an environment that really fosters humility where people can put their masks away and be known for who they really are? I mean, is there a church like that where people are going to be real like this guy? Where people aren't going to be posturing and where do I fit in and what do, what do these people think about me over here and am I impressing these people? Am I godly enough for these people? Do I say the right words? And these people are a little freer over here. Am I worldly enough for them? Or not really worldly, but am I free enough to be able to enjoy some of my freedoms in the world like these people? Do I fit in? Am I posturing, measuring myself? What do they think about me? What is that small group leader thinking about me? What are they thinking about me in the children's ministry? What do the other members of the worship team think about me? Is there a place where we could say, I'm not really concerned with impressing people. I'm just concerned with being real because that's where I receive grace. He says the humble person will be exalted. Peter says later in a letter that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Is there a place where we could all be real and just receive God's grace for change? Instead of posturing saying the right thing, looking the right way, measuring ourselves among ourselves, and God would say that person is resisted by God. The proud are resisted. I don't fully know what that means, but it does not sound good. None of us want to be resisted by God. Grace to change. All your questions were good in the new members class. That's one of the most profound questions I've ever heard. We all want to be known and loved. And we fear that if we are known, we will be rejected. And so we put forth an image. That's the Pharisee. He wants everyone to know what he's not like so that you'll think well about him. But Jesus, in essence, says the guy's rotten in his core. Oh, yeah, he's giving his money. Oh, yeah, he is, uh, he is fasting. He's missing meals and probably telling you about it. I've all been to lunch with that guy. Oh, sorry, I'm fasting this month. I can't eat. Oh, okay, sorry. Sorry, feel bad eating my double cheeseburger now, but um, quickly say, oh, me too, me too. Let's just get a water. Uh, He's fasting, he's giving, he's not cheating. Jesus never says that's not true. Jesus never says, oh, he's lying. He's an extortioner. No, he just says he's self-righteous. He told a parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He's proud of his actions, but he's not very compassionate. He's obeying, but there's no love. He's obeying externally. There's no love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, without love, I am nothing. I can do all kinds of things. He's not loving the tax collector. He's saying, I'm not like that guy. So how do we change? What's the answer to her question? What, how, do we, how do we create? How do we be that culture as a church? And there's plenty of that in our culture. There are plenty of people who live this out in our midst. Plenty of humble people living this way, I believe. But we all want to grow. Well, we start by acknowledging who we are before God. We recognize God's perfection in our sin. And when we do, we won't be comparing. We won't be looking for security in what we've done but we'll be seeing our need for mercy. That's where it starts, seeing my need for mercy. 
We'll be seeing what Christ has done for me. When was the last time you prayed a prayer like this? You say, well, I've never beat my breast. Okay, that's okay. It's just an expression. You don't have to do exactly what he did. You don't have to stand far off. Well, I didn't even come in the building. I was in the parking garage. No, I'm, you, don't have to, you don't have to mirror everything he did. I'm not saying, when did you physically do this? I'm saying, when did that attitude last show up in your prayer life? Lord, I am grieved over my sin, and I want your forgiveness. When was the last time you can, let's, let's say not even grief. When was the last time you confessed sin to God? Now, some people can be overly aware of their sin, sin conscious, on a sin hunt, all about sin. That's not where the story ends. The story ends with mercy. So that's wrong. I'm not talking about that. But when was the last time that you would say, hey, I I really sincerely confess my sin to God? Is confession foreign to you? Does it seem negative to you? Jesus seems to be commending it. It's not negative here. It's not low self-esteem. It's a guy receiving the mercy of God in power and a changed life. It opens the door to encountering God and growth as a believer, or it opens the door to becoming a believer by trusting God. Once we're real with God, then we will be free to be real with others. That's really the answer. If I'm not real with God, I'll never be real with you. If I am not living out of a a secure relationship with God, then I will constantly be grasping for security by gaining other people's approval. By being, acknowledging where I'm better than someone else, at least mentally, if not verbally, and aware of what I am doing to make myself right with God. Once we are gripped with God's mercy, we will see, I love this quote, it may not be exact quote, but a saying that I've heard from Tim Keller use, I don't know if it's original with him, but I love this. This is once we are gripped by God's mercy, we will see that we are more sinful and flawed than we ever dared to believe. And at the same time, we are more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. This guy gets that he is more sinful than he ever knew, once he sees the holiness of God. But do you know at the same time you are more accepted and more loved than you ever hoped you could be loved? When we walk in that kind of freedom, we must, before the Lord, then we can walk in that kind of freedom before others. So let me ask you this. When was the last time you really sensed the love of God like we're speaking about right now, where you sensed God's acceptance so you didn't have to prove yourself, God's approval so you didn't have to strive for approval? When was the last time that in your heart you were just overwhelmed, not just by confessing sin, but by the forgiveness of Christ? When was the last time you were overwhelmed by the fact the Father loves you? The Father embraces you. When was the last time you felt like you were the prodigal and the Lord was running to you? Not saying prove yourself, not saying, well, okay, work off your debt, but running to you and embracing you. When was the last time you felt that kind of love? The unchanging acceptance that comes to us in Christ. When was the last time that you saw your sin and really confessed it? And when was the last time you were met with the love of God? Do you know the Bible says that God sings over you? We came here to sing today, but before we sang one note, God was already singing over you. The Bible says we are the apple of his eye. 
Some of us have a real strong sin consciousness and a real weak love of the Father consciousness. And we, we must have both because both are true and both are necessary if we're gonna walk freely. If I'm secure in the forgiveness and the love of God, then I can be free to be real before you. If I'm not secure in his love and in his forgiveness, then I think you may judge me, even though I know God's judgment on me was poured out on Christ on the cross. God has already judged my sin on Jesus, so I should be able to be free, but I'm often not aware of forgiveness, not aware of his love, not aware of his approval, not aware of his acceptance, so I think that you're gonna treat me the same way, and I've gotta do something to impress you, and the best thing I can do is tell, not really tell you what I'm like. The Lord wants a freedom for us. We wanna be a church where the grace of God is present so that it is okay to be honest. I mean, that's a crazy statement, isn't it? We're a church where honesty is recommended, except when we talk about ourselves, at which point we should all put on a mask. That doesn't sound very Christian, does it? It's where we admit what the Lord has done for us in Christ, what we have done and what he's done for us that we can change. Let me read you a quote I read that was stellar to me this week. I forget the guy's name, he's not an author you would know, you might know him, I didn't know him, but he wrote this about this parable. There is something a bit terrifying about this parable. The prospect it places before the reader today or the hearer, there's something terrifying before the hearer today. There is within every person that which makes it possible for him to do the same thing the Pharisee did. He can go to the place of worship, check, done that. He can go to the place of worship, go through the forms of worship, we're about done, check and still go home the same person he was. He has been through the form, but not the function of worship. Nothing has happened, nothing has changed. That same Pharisee, apart from the grace of God, is there the next day praying the same prayer. So how will you respond? We almost respond to God's word. We almost say, this is me, this is not someone else. The problem's me, the problem's not out there. So how will you respond? Is there an attitude you've held towards a person or a group? Maybe it's one of the groups I mentioned. Some of them we kind of laughed at, but they were all really serious. I mean, I wasn't joking about any of them. Ultimately, they're all real. Is there a group of people that you've judged and been critical of? Well, then you need to ask the Lord to show you how that appears before him. It looks just like this Pharisee does. And ask for forgiveness. Ask for forgiveness and make a plan to change. Make a plan to change. It doesn't always help to go to the person. And I really judge you because of this. I don't even know. I mean, you don't need to necessarily do that. You may if, you, if, you, if you've broken relationship with them. But confess that. Maybe make a plan to change. What, what, how will I change? Maybe it's confessing to your spouse or a friend, your parent. Maybe it's confessing to them. You know, I have a real problem with fill in the blank. These kinds of people, this person in particular, now, you don't share that publicly because that could be gossip, but I, I, I need help. Would you help me? If you hear me saying things, if you hear me reacting, if you hear me just me rolling my eyes and sighing and gasping every time that person or that idea or that, would you help me? I don't want to be a Pharisee. Has it been a long time since you confessed sin to God? Maybe, maybe you should go before the Lord and ask him to help you. I used to do an exercise. I haven't done this in years. But as part of my prayer time, if the Lord puts something on my heart, I would take a piece of paper out and write the sin on it. Lust, greed, 
anger, um, craving the approval of other people, fear, not taking a stand for Christ, fear, whatever it would be. Writing it down, I'd write down whatever the Lord brought to mind on paper. Then I would write, you know, First uh, John on it. If, we're, if, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. I'd write that on it. Then I would take my prayer, Lord, forgive me for these sins. And then I would crumble that up and throw it away as a sign that the Lord has put that away. He has forgiven me afresh. Now I would pray for power to change. I'd add something to that. Lord, help me to sense your forgiveness. Might be taking another piece of paper and writing down some verses about the loving about the fatherhood of God and his love for us. But what is it? Have you confessed? Maybe it's something like that. Has it been a long time since you acknowledged your sins before others? Maybe you say, when was the last time you confessed a sin to a friend, to a spouse, to one of your kids, to your parents, in your community group? When was the last time you acknowledged? Part of that culture is being real and acknowledging our own sins and asking for prayer and asking for help. Is there someone you know that you've sinned against that your action is to go to them and ask their forgiveness and be reconciled. And again, if it's just you thought bad thoughts about them, that's not always helpful to go, okay? But if you've done, in other words, you see what I'm saying, hey, I've been thinking all these things about you, and they walk away going, well, yeah, that's not a blessing at all. <laughs> now, now, we're, now we don't have a relationship. I'm not saying that. But you've got to think about, is there somebody I need to be reconciled? So confessing to the Lord, receiving his love, responding to others, taking a step as uh, I, was, I was asked yesterday, being a part of the solution of creating a culture where people are real because of the gospel. Because of the gospel. It often takes one person. I've been in so many groups when I'm not that one person and somebody just plays their card, so to speak, and just puts down the center table, here's what's going on in my life. And all of a sudden, whew, the whole atmosphere changes and then everybody's on it. Sometimes it just takes one person. But we don't want to do that just to create a culture. We want to do that because that honors the Lord. Because the Lord commends humility as the, as the heart of growing in godliness. Because the Lord is honored by those who not only acknowledge their own failure, but who treasure His grace and His mercy and welcome His love. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org.